This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com. In today's dynamic retail landscape, tracking openings and closings before they take place has never been more important. Having this intelligence is an undeniable competitive advantage. RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com, also known as ROCK, tracks future openings and future closings. Comprehensive, accurate, and reliable, the ROCK is your crystal ball and the key to making well-informed decisions with confidence in today's evolving retail climate. Welcome to Retail Retold. Today we have Ariel Schuster. Ariel is a commercial real estate and a retail expert in New York City. I am excited for you to hear his insights on commercial real estate, in particular on retail real estate in New York, both pre and post pandemic. But before we go there, I I wanted to talk about uh, a topic I was talking to my brother-in-law actually about the other day. And I gave him a story when I was wrestling and uh, the, the story's from my sophomore year in college. And it's, it's a lesson I learned on the mat that I, I take with me um, in the business world today. And when I was a sophomore, I was, I had a really, really good record. I was having a great year. And this is a sophomore in college at Rutgers. And I had to take top three in my conference to make it uh, to the big dance, the NCAA tournament, the equivalent of the March Madness NCAA tournament. And I'd been training for a long time for, for this opportunity. And I was in the quarterfinals and I was wrestling this uh, opponent from Cornell. And I was winning. I got the, I I scored early and I was dominating the very beginning of the match. And about midway through the match, I started clock watching and was just trying to run out the clock. You know, that kind of gave my opponent some confidence and he started, you know, thinking to himself that he could come back and that he could win the match. And I, I let someone in the match that shouldn't have been in the match with me. And I lost, I ended up losing that match 5-4 um, because I was running for the hills. I tried to coast it out. I tried to let the clock run out and I didn't keep on offense. I didn't keep scoring. I didn't keep attacking and I didn't keep going. And I think that's, you know, one of the punchlines that I would give people some advice on as you move through the pandemic is you, to the best defense is a good offense. and to keep pushing through and stay on offense. And the, the minute you try to just, you know, wait it out, watch the clock, close your eyes and wait for it to, to be over. That's when things creep up on you and you let, and, and you let your guard down and things start to happen that you didn't want to happen. So my advice, keep on offense, 
keep pushing through. Don't close your eyes and, and, and wait for it to be over. With that, I, I hope everyone enjoys the show. Uh, I think it's a good one. It's, you know, really on topic given everything going on with uh, the pandemic. Thanks, everyone. See you soon. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today we have Ariel Schuster. Ariel is a broker in Manhattan for Newmark, and he has been in the industry uh, for 20 years. And so I'm excited to have his commercial real estate expertise on the show and uh, his New York City expertise on the show. Welcome to the show, Ariel. Thank you, Chris. Great to be on. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do, uh, you know, pre-COVID-19, what was a what were you working on? What were the stuff? What do you typically do? What's your business like and all that good stuff? Sure. Well, you know, I think like many retail brokers, I stumbled into the industry. Um, you know, I was a senior at Tulane uh, with a job on Wall Street and you know, a family friend took me to ICSE for as a college graduation gift and I fell in love with the industry right away. So after traveling to Europe for a year, I came back. Um, you know, I started a small company called Lansco, which is, uh, I think now defunct in 1999. And then after six months, uh, went over to join RKF where I had been for 18 years. And that company was, you know, really a great place to learn, uh, learn the business, cut my teeth and had a great run there. You know, about two and a half years ago, we decided to sell uh, the company and, you know, have then join Newmark. So that's been really a great experience. It's been really eye-opening. It's really expanded how we think about real estate. And, you know, we went from being totally blindfolded into or, or, or blinded into just focusing on retail. Now we're thinking about fulfillment, interaction between um, retailers and office, you know, financing, loan sales, which is now a bigger topic in our conversation. So it's been part being part of Numark's been awesome. You know, my day-to-day is, is pretty straightforward. I do, um, you know, 50% of my business is landlord rep. So I do a lot of work for SL Green and Renato. I mean, uh, SL Green and Brookfield and uh, Extel over the years. I uh, have had some clients for 20 plus years in my entire career with one landlord. And then I represent about 25 retailers, you know, ranging from Williams-Sonoma to The Gap to Pret-a-Manger, Manolo Blahnik. Um, so it's really all over the place and I really, you know, I think 90 plus percent of my business is in New York city. Um, but I do do some national work and, you know, doing both the retail rep and the landlord rep is really helpful because that allows me to see it from both sides, uh, how they view things. And certainly during COVID that's been instrumental in what I do day to day. But, um, you know, I run a team of about 20 people out of our office, uh, in midtown Manhattan and I love what I do. Awesome. So you know, New York and New York is, is going through it right now, obviously making headline news every day, tough stuff. And you can find any headline that you want to find. You you can find that you're going to see some de-urbanization because People are going to get want to get out of close quarters. You, you can find that New York is 
always strong and will find a way in the resilience of New York will find a way. And so, you know, walk us through a little bit. What's your, what was the state of retail in New York going into this? And, and, and where do you think it, you know, what is the aerial take on where it shakes out a little bit as we come out of this? And what are, what are landlords and retailers thinking about the city right now? So, so I think New York is unique in the context of the whole country and, you know, speaking to the people in, you know, Boston and Chicago and LA and Miami, New York had this tremendous rise in rents, you know, after the 08, 09 financial meltdown, New York recovered really quickly. And there was 10% increases from 09 to 16. So rents got, I mean, they just flew up and that didn't happen in other urban markets. You know, starting in 16, the cracks were clear and, you know, over the past 24 months, rents have come down um, in some submarkets dramatically. Um, you know, pre-COVID, we still were, were having these discussions with both landlords and retailers, and we pointed out to them that rents were still higher than they were in 09. So there was still um, more rent compression happening. Um, and, you know, the reality is that parts of New York City are over-retailed. I mean, there's parts of New York City that uh, have too many stores. And that's not the similar to the rest of the country where you have the A malls, B malls, C malls. And, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, I think of COVID as fast tracking a lot of things that would have happened anyway. You know, we're seeing, you know, the restaurant sector, which, you know, the restaurant sector, which we should spend a few minutes on later on, you know, many of those restaurant operators were already struggling and this just fastened their demise. Many of the retailers who have not spent money and invested in technology we're struggling and, you know, their demise is going to be fast-tracked. Um, you know, rents that were going to come down further in the next five years are coming down faster now. And, you know, the deal structure is changing drastically. Um, you know, when transactions start up and they're starting to, you know, the last two, three weeks, we're starting to see some green shoots, starting to see some deals moving. They def- they're definitely different than they were, you know, last year. Good perspective. You read headline news and you know, over the past few years, and it, they talk about, you know, the, the vacancy in Manhattan. And I would always say actually that the, the, the misleading thing is that tenants don't want to be in New York. That's, that's not the issue. The tenant demand is strong, but it's a bid ask issue. And if the Right. If it was extreme and the rents came down 50%, there'd be 100% occupancy in Manhattan. Is it a, was it, is it a bid ask issue, meaning that it's just a price issue? Or is there also a demand issue, which I said there wasn't, where, you know, tons of tenants across the world want to be in New York? It's just a price issue. You know, we certainly, are lucky to work in New York City because it's often the first stop for any international retailer. Um, so there are, you know, and when we look at our agencies and we start doing outreach, you know, we, we make lists of hundreds of brands, whether they're in Europe or Asia, they're still not in New York. So there is still a tremendous amount of people who have not entered. So from my perspective, there's almost unlimited demand, but you're right. The rents were just, um, were too high for a lot of them. And, and, you know, we are, you know, the positive in me is think about a couple of trends that I think are going to help New York City. 
you know, one being the fact that there's still a lot that have been circling over the years and now that rents have dropped, it may be their opportunity. I also think that the fast-tracking demise of department stores is going to have a very positive impact on urban you know, urban markets around the country, but specifically in New York. I think you know, as these brands and you know, we, what we do is we catalog everybody selling in Neiman and everybody selling at Saks and everybody was at Barney's. And for a lot of these companies, they were doing the majority of their U.S. business at on wholesale. And those brands now need to keep selling things in the U.S. And I think that's going to lead to to more s- stores opening that historically would just continue to be in the department stores. That is a great insight that there's all these brands that are selling in department stores that don't have a brick and mortar presence and or another channel to sell them other than online. And so they're going to have to open up stores. That's a, um, that probably will help other parts of the country too, not just New York. It's a really good insight actually. Any, any, any brands come to mind that you think of that like, man, these guys should have a store. They don't have one yet. They're in these department stores and you can see them happen having a store. Uh, you got me after eight and a half weeks uh, trapped in a house. I, I, I don't have a good <laughs> no worries. off the top of my head, but I'll give you a good example. I mean, our, our team um, last, or I guess two years now, uh, took a bank called Delvo that had, been, that had been in Barney's with a huge position in Barney's um, and moved them to Fifth Avenue. And the thought process was let's get ahead of you know, potential Barney demise. Let's have our own storefront. So, you know, we're, we're certainly seeing that um, interesting. Yeah, yeah that's that's really interesting. That's really good perspective. The are the are the days gone where someone would open up a flagship as a loss leader in Manhattan and write it off as a marketing expense, or does that still happen? You know, I used to hear all the stories that someone opened a store in Manhattan the four walls, it does crazy sales volume, but the rent's so high, the four wall EBITDA is negative, but they write it off as a marketing expense. Does that still happen or less? It's certainly less. And I think for brokers, you know, we certainly enjoyed those flagships, but <laughs> I think there's certainly going to be less. But you can also argue, and I, you know, I, I always put a positive spin on things. You can argue that if you're a store with 300 U.S. locations, the one in Manhattan is, or the five in Manhattan are, are important, but not crucial. And I think the, my view is there's going to be those 300 store chains are going to become 25 or 50. And therefore the New York city stores are going to become even more important. And the reality is, is another part that's being fast tracked is the shift to online. Um, and, and when you, when you are relying more and more online, having a showroom or flagship, in urban big cities is important. So I think you'll see less mega high rent flagships, but I do still think that the concept of a showroom where the four wall may not actually be profitable will continue. Got it. Interesting. Um, the, I, you hear some crazy stories about stores that lose money and they just call it marketing instead of a rent expense. So I think everyone's always wondering if that, if that still happens. So that's, that's great insight there. The, um, so you mentioned we should, we should talk about restaurants. What, uh, yeah. what's your, what's your thought on the food and beverage world right now? Yeah. So it's funny. Cause when I, I love food, it's my passion in life. And, and when I started the business, I, my plan was to be a restaurant broker. 
and I very quickly learned that that industry is, it's very difficult to make money. And it's all key money deals. And, you know, but I, but I love it. And, and I, as a lover of food, I enjoy it. So I do represent quite a few QSRs, you know, Pret Marger, Cava Grill, PF Chang's, you know, so I'm very much involved in that world, but in the full line restaurant, you know, in the past two years, as wages have gone up drastically in New York, you know, we've heard that as a real issue for, um, for these restaurants. And it's been a drastic change in their, their, their cost of operating their business. So restaurants are already struggling. Um, there's clearly a flight to quality in the, in the QSR world. You know, the, the tenants that are technologically advanced um, are just in a better position. I mean, Sweet Green, Cava, you know, Chipotle, the ones that are able to have app-driven business um, were really putting a dent in the, uh, that, that whole QSR sector. And then a lot of the restaurants were just, they're just struggling. Um, and I think, you know, I listened to a fascinating webinar about, that Newmark hosted about three restaurateurs in Boston. And, and they said their workers are better off during this time on unemployment. They're making more money on unemployment. And, and as long as it continues with unemployment being extended, they don't want to bring them back. They don't want to bring them back, risk their health. Um, so, you know, even if things come back, and again, I'm an optimist, there is going to be a long run up on restaurants. I mean, operationally, it's going to be half the tables. Um, you know, everybody is hearing about all these great things people are doing in terms of delivery and pickup and curbside and cocktails and grocery. And I think those are all great, but you know, these restaurateurs were very clear that those are not paying the bills. You know, these restaurants make their money, you know, and actually it was fascinating. One of the guys was put up his performa, you know, last year's numbers and this is performa. And, and he went through what his liquor business was and what the six to eight business was. And he went really went through it. And if these restaurants are not fully operational with full dining rooms and full bar, you know, it's, it's just the economics just don't work. So, yeah. um, you know, as a lover of new Orleans, I did go to Tulane. I, you know, again, the light the tunnel is, you know, Katrina wiped out that whole industry. And, and five years later, there was more restaurants than before Katrina. So my hope is, you know, as rents reset, um, as deal structures change, and we should talk about that a little bit, you know, I think a whole new wave of, of restaurants are going to come in. Um, and do things a little bit differently. And that's obviously all dependent on when people can go back to restaurants. And, and that's, of course, the $64,000 question. So on the value side, I actually had James Walker on the podcast, who's the uh, the top oh, the top guy the, for real estate at Nathan's Hot Dogs, New York, right? And so he before, and he came on to promote it, promote it a little bit, which was, he just um, he just did a uh, a deal with, or they did a deal with the Ghost Kitchen in New York City, so that they could start delivering at scale through uh, New York Metro. And you know, they signed that deal right before COVID. He was on the show as COVID started in early March, so I'm interested to see how that's working out for them because. They just inked the ghost kitchen deal and I'm probably fairly certain they, you know, that's probably propped them through this a little bit. Uh, 
you know, I haven't had Nathan's lately, but um, yeah. <laughs> but well, the ghost ghost kitchens are, um, I think, a term that is thrown around as as the solution to everything. And I think just like food halls came in and there was an over proliferation of those, I think ghost kitchens they're very hard to operate. And we've dealt with quite a few operators that come in, and the ones who do it well do it very well. You know, we're working with one group that's, you know, looking, this is an opportunity. They're going in, they own their own brands and they're going to be, they're, they're going to be opening up quite a few of these that are front facing and ghost kitchens with their own brands. But the ones who um, are bringing in third party, it's logistically challenging. And yeah. the drivers just yesterday or two days ago, New York state announced that they're passing a cap on, on third party fees you know that it's very complicated and getting getting it right is complicated um and i think the companies that can control their own process are the ones that are going to succeed you know, one of our clients is pf changs you know, really great people um the company sold last year and then the mandate was to think through the, the, the next what, what is what is the restaurants moving forward so we just we signed four leases in Manhattan. We're helping them all around the country for their to-go concept. And really, it's no seating, uh, very technology-driven. Um, we've been very good about locating them kind of on the edge of residential and, and office. And, you know, they're going to be relying less on the sit and dining and more on quick app, go downstairs, pick it up, deliver. Um, and, you know, that's going to complement their full-line stores, full-line restaurants. So... It's, I really do believe that it's the, the, the retailers and restaurants that have the capital to invest and be thoughtful moving forward are going to make it. And, and the ones that just don't have the money to change the direction of the ship are going to are going to have a tough time getting out of this thing. Yeah, that, that, that's for sure. Right. You need you need capital to invest in order to pivot through this and, you know, serve the demand of the new consumer for sure. And so those that do will probably reap the rewards of that. And those that don't have that capital are going to need to find it. You know, they're going to need to find it. So, so you mentioned deal structure. I'm sure between 09 and 16 deal structures were different than pre-recession and then 16 till early 20, they were one way. And then how do you see them going forward? You know, it's tricky to, to to discuss is we are dealing with a lot of within the lease negotiations right now, renegotiations. And that's, you know, a Pandora's box of issues. And, you know, we're dealing with our, our landlords are calling us and saying, what should I do? And again, we have to open up the loan docs. And, you know, if it's a CMBS, you have nobody to talk to. You're talking to some special servicer that doesn't want to answer your calls. Um, and so understanding that part of the business is very important for retail brokers. Yeah. So for us during COVID, you know, for us, it's pretty simple. We've been, you know, working and, you know, under understanding and empathetic to the scenario and, and trying to work with everybody. Um, and if you're willing to come to an agreement, potentially work through some things that are challenging for the landlord on the lease end and maybe there's some room for negotiation as it relates to where we are today 
So I think the challenge comes is if it's just, hey, landlord, give me free rent and don't do anything in return. I think that's a challenge. Landlords are understanding, but there has to be like a, hey, this is a challenge for me as a tenant right now. I'm not ringing the register. Um, and the landlord saying, okay, well, here's a challenge for me as we look through the crisis and what's going to happen to me. If we can work on this, can you know maybe I can help you here with some deferment or something. Yeah, and I think listen, it's our industry has always been about relationships, and that sounds overly cliche, but it's absolutely true. You know, the conversations I'm having are very different when we, you know, we you know we reach out to landlords on the tenants' behalf. You know, in March, late March, and saying this is a situation with April rent, and inversely, as a landlord agent, when we communicate, even just getting on a phone as opposed to emailing or, or setting something up. I mean, listen, we're all going to be in this industry for a long time and people are going to remember how we all treat each other. I mean, the outcome may be the same at the end of the day and maybe the same result, but, and that's also going to flow to the lenders. I mean, the, the, the owners that are, you know, when we advise them also, the owners who are reaching out to their lenders early and having a conversation are going to be treated differently than the ones who just don't send in the, mortgage payment and when they go back to borrow money three years from now it's going to be very different so there is a human touch to it and, and actually i empathize a lot with our retailers you know at this point they're my friends and you know it, it's a it's a very difficult position for them because they are put in a position to you know, really hammer hammer out these things that they know it's not the landlord's fault um and you know so it's it's actually very trying on, on people right now. This whole thing is trying on, on totally. everybody. So. Totally. So let, let's pivot a minute. Let, let's go, you know, back in time. I don't know how far we're going. Um, do, you, do you have a story about a, a store that opened in Manhattan that you, you uh, would want to share with the audience? Yeah, well, I think one that hasn't opened yet, but I'm really excited about is, you know, one of the things I pride myself is, is the diversity of my business. You know, I, I, you know, do, I like to say I, I can do everything, you know, and, and really about two, four or five years ago, we started, I decided just, I really wanted to focus on luxury. So we were, you know, really successful leasing up a few projects on Madison Avenue um, and, you know, strung along about 10 deals on Madison. And about a year and a half ago, I got introduced to Manolo Blahnik which had just at that point bought back the rights to um, their U.S. business. And the, really the nicest people, real pleasure to work with. And, you know, we had a very extensive search. We spent a lot of time having discussions with them about, you know, Madison. We told them you know, all that's happening in Soho, meatpacking as a consideration. But we were always focused on Madison Avenue. And, you know, we, we you know signed a, a lease for them for their retail you know, office and showroom at 717 Madison. And I think it was a really great deal because the family that owned it has owned it forever. They love the brand. Um, the building is architecturally stunning. You know, I think uh, obviously there's delay in them getting open, but I think that store will be great for Madison. I mean, I think it really validates Madison as, as, the, as the luxury street. You know, look, Madison's had its ups and downs. Um, so I think that was... Last couple of years, one of my my favorite deals. And how did you? How long have they been a client of yours? You know, we they became a client right as they right as they took back control of the U.S. So, um, 
you know, the relationship came through a lawyer that I've known over the years and you know, the company, they interviewed a few brokers. We were, you know, I think we were, they were impressed by our, our knowledge of the street and, you know, we kind of hit off right away. Uh, you know. Got it. And so you get connected through a lawyer, they get control of the U S and my understanding, they sell women, they sell women's shoes, right? And, and men's and, and men's. men's and men's. Okay. You guys start talking and do they come to you and say, I want to be on Madison Avenue or do they come to you and say, we need to open a store in New York. We're not sure how big it is. We need your help. We, you know, where do we go? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was kind of all of that, you know, we had, we sat down for, you know, a nice coffee and talked about what we're knowing the market, you know, they, they're based in London. So they, they know New York, you know, they're obviously they, they've, they know well, and they kind of ask for our opinion about what we're seeing out there. And, and we walk through what is happening on Madison, what is happening on Fifth. You know, there has been a change in Soho over the last three or five years, and, and it would not even have been a conversation five years ago, but it was a conversation. And you know, our opinion was that Soho is great, but it's not uh, necessarily right for the brand. So we really got them focused on Madison Avenue, and then. You know, the process was getting the decision tree was do you do a store and then do a showroom within the store do you do a separate office because they're going to have a big office um and you know the, the beauty of 717 mass is they could do everything under one roof so they have the majority of the building um and you know the, the challenge was really getting a store that that allows them to do everything they want uh, on the retail and the office component was was the kind of the gravy and so how big was this uh, it's just under 10,000 feet total. Including the office part? Yeah, yeah. But Multi-story? Yeah, it's 3,300 square foot on the ground. and It's, it's a little complex because they have portions of floors, but it's about 10,000 feet total. And for those who don't know Manhattan, is there are there different rent structures per floor? Right. So, so I, the, the rule that we use is the second floor or lower level are worth a quarter to a third of the ground floor rent. And that's derived from what we've heard from retailers over the years, say they do in, in sales. Um, there is New Yorkers, and I think it's the same for everywhere, but New Yorkers tend to like to prefer to go upstairs and downstairs. You know, certain, certain of our retailers will not sell out of basements. I do a lot of work for CVS and you know, we do two level stores in Manhattan, but they're ground and second. They're not ground and lower. Um, so that's the sentiment from, from retailers that they prefer to go up for sell, for selling space. Got it. Interesting. And one of the things interesting about New York is all the unique different neighborhoods. And you said that, you know, Soho might not have been right for the brand right now. And so what does that mean? For their customer, which is, you know, Soho is, is young and cutting edge. And, you know, there's people, a lot of people who do stores, do something different right and for manolo really this was a pure this was a pure play store you know they know the customer they're looking to replicate what they just did in paris and it, for them it was just you know, their traditional brand and their customer really is the upper east side customer so they felt strong about it and they felt that you know they're not going to do 10 stores in manhattan this is the right store for them um but yeah i mean neighborhoods are you know fast. i did the gap in old navy flagships in, in Times Square and for them 
the mentality there was, you know, we're opening all around the world. Japan, we're entering Mexico. For them, you know, they both, they had presence on in 34th Street, which is similar. Gap has had a store in Times Square on the outskirts for years. You know, for them, the decision was Times Square gave them something. You know, for a lot of brands, Soho gives them something. It gives them um, validity. And, and I actually am very bullish on Soho long-term. I think as rents reset, um, both Soho and Madison are going to come back at, at the new basis. Awesome. All right. Well, that, that that's an interesting story. I, you know, one of the pieces I find interesting, you mentioned relationships and a lawyer, you know, brought you a client. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I, my team hates me because I hammer, hammer um, networking. You know, I, for my young guys, I actually print out a networking log where I have breakfast, lunch, dinner, and, you know, I push different ways of doing it. And I, I'm, I know that the people who are successful in our industry are, are the ones who, who network. I mean, the, the people I looked up to when I started in the business all, you know, explained to me it's the long game. And you know, I'm, I'm, you know, after 20 years, it's clear to me that, you know, the, the way to get new businesses most often through networking. So the definition of networking is meeting or speaking to somebody that you're not actively working on a deal with. Um, so it's not taking a client to lunch. It's meeting with, uh, a lawyer or a mortgage broker or somebody in construction that knows which retailers are expanding. Um, so, and it can be varied. It's not, it doesn't always have to be steak dinners. It could be soul cycle. It could be walk in the park. It could be a charity event. So, you know, that's, I think extremely important. You know, the, the retail brokers I've looked up to over the years that have been successful have Manola is a perfect example of that. I would actually characterize it, you know, it feels like a little bit of a lost art. I, and I would character, you know, with the with the advent of social media, it feels like people try to network socially and not as much over the steak dinners anymore or, or the soul cycles even. And I would say it's, forget about brokerage or commercial real estate, or it's just good business. No matter what business to be yeah. you're in, for anybody out there who's in, you know, I, I love the way you put it, you know, doing something with someone you're not working on a deal with. I, I, I think it's just good business from a business perspective to be constantly networking creates opportunities. Yeah, and listen, the reality is it's, it sounds easier than it is. And yeah. there are definitely challenges and you can't just, you know, people's personalities are all different. And, you know, the, the challenges, you know, I remember my first, ICSC, you know, one of the guys I looked up to said, you should have a dinner. And I said, well, I don't have any money and I don't have any clients. So, but he really forced me at 21 to host a dinner and I cobbled together three people in the industry and, and took them out, you know, but I remember that. And I always think about the young brokers and, and what they're going through. And it's, it's, it's easy to say, Hey, go out there and network, but it's hard. Um, but you know, I, I, the reality is the people that they're dealing with are going to be the ones calling the shots in a few years. And these relationships are super important to form early. And like I said, I think the people on my team probably hate me for talking about it over and over and over, but it is a very important part of our business. Awesome. Well, listen, good story. Thanks for the perspective on New York real estate. Um, really, really interesting and insightful. And uh, I want to pivot to, the last part of the show, retail wisdom. 
I got three questions for you. You ready for the questions? I am ready. All right. One, best piece of commercial real estate advice? Uh, think long-term. Um, don't focus on short-term short -term transactions and commissions and focus on the long-term. Sage advice, sage advice. All right, second question. Extinct retailer you wish would come back from the dead? You know, I, I kind of miss Woolworth just because when I was a kid, I lived in Israel and I moved to the U.S. when I was 10 and they had baseball cards and to me that was just like the most amazing store. Um, so I think sentimentally probably that one. Awesome. That's not one someone said before. So very cool. Good store. Um, definitely miss that store. Good. That's a great one. That great real estate, by the way. You can, you can tell a Woolworth, old Woolworth in the boroughs. You drive around the boroughs, the architecture, you always know it's a Woolworth and you can probably figure out who, owned, you know, who the landlord is at this point. Yeah, totally. Um, it's a great point. All right. Last question, Ariel, which is I'm going to give a retail product. You're going to give the, the retail price and this one's going to be fun. So right now you're in sea isle and I, um, spend a lot of time in the summer in Avalon and my father-in-law introduced me to a down and dirty fish shack that is incredible, um, called doc Mike's in Sea Isle, and they have at Doc Mike's the fresh Old Bay crab balls that are amazing. They sell them on their takeout menu right now. You could order them tonight in a quantity of 10. What do the fresh Old Bay crab balls retail for at Doc Mike's, Mike's Fresh Fried Starters? So before I answer that question, Doc Mike's reopened three weeks ago. I've done every Friday. It's amazing. And every Friday they call me Mario and I say Ariel and they say Mario. And so now I just say Mario. I believe. And I always order a hundred clams. It's amazing. Shrimp, but I believe that would be thirty two ninety nine. According to their right now it's eleven ninety nine for ten. So they've been oh. you've been overpaying. Okay. Well, I haven't ordered those, but it's a, it's great. And Marie's just open also. So we're, uh, we've been cooking a lot. So I usually get the fresh stuff here. I, I love that. They call you Mario. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Well, listen, this has been awesome. Really. Thanks for coming on. When things settle down, um, I don't know that I want to go for a walk in the park with you, but maybe, <laughs> uh, maybe we'll grab that steak dinner. Sounds good. Sounds good. I'll be, I'll be very excited to have some steak dinner, some wine, and some martinis when this is when we're back to normal. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.